from the Hill Country of Texas, this is One Radio Network. It is 7 o'clock Central Time, and welcome to One Radio Network. This is Patrick Timpone. It is the uh, 19th day of March 2008, and every, each Wednesday we talk about your money from a very unique perspective. With Andrew Goss, he's a 25-year currency historian, nationally recognized expert in the United States monetary system. He has a couple of books under his belt, The Secret World of Money, and Uncle Sam Cooks the Books. He also has a newsletter called The World of Money. Mr. Goss, good evening. How are things on the East Coast? Well, wonderful here, Patrick, and I hope everything's great down in Texas yeah, as well. Yeah, it's good. The sun's about to set. Well, I mean, it's almost kismet that we start doing a a weekly show because there's enough here for a daily show. Oh, indeed. Yeah. I mean, boy, it's really, really interesting. Let, let's kick off with uh, explain exactly what happened with Bear Stearns. And they call it a bailout. You call the Fed loaned them money. They sold. They bought it for two bucks a share. Tell us exactly what happened there. Well, near as I've been able to gather, uh, sometime around 12 days ago, uh, Bear Stearns, remember we were talking about those leveraged uh, deals last week. Uh, Bear Stearns decided they were going to leverage a whole pile of Treasury bonds, knowing that the Fed was going to cut interest rates this week. Uh, they figured they would move in, uh, buy a bunch of Treasury bonds on margin, and then uh, when interest rates went down, naturally the face value of the bonds would go up. They could sell them and reap the benefit, the profit. So they literally bet. I mean, it was just gamble. Yeah, they had no use for the treasury bonds. Uh, they only wanted to gamble. That's mm-hmm. right. Speculate. Right. Well, the opposing, or the counterparty in the trade was none other than uh, Goldman Sachs, one of the primary owners of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Oh, they sold the, They sold them to them. To well, they were, they were buying them from Goldman Sachs. Okay. So they were calling up Goldman Sachs, essentially saying something like, well, we want to buy $10 billion worth of Treasury bonds. We're going to put up $1 billion, because that's the leverage, and you'll give us $10 billion worth of Treasury bonds. And Goldman Sachs said, well, we won't do it with you as a counterparty. So much the same as uh, 1907, when J.P. Morgan told Knickerbocker Trust that they wouldn't accept them as a counterparty, that kind of set the stage. And so then from there, the rumors started flying that Bear Stearns was in trouble. Midweek, the CEO uh, comes on uh, television and tells everybody that everything's fine. They don't have any problems. Everything's good. And then, of course, uh, over the weekend, uh, a midnight marriage is arranged between uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and Bear Stearns at $2 a share, which is about a quarter of the price of their building there on Wall Street. A quarter of the price of the building. Wow. Yeah. So it was uh, it was an unfortunate deal because the bulk of that firm is owned by the employees of the company. It's a, an employee-owned firm. And so these employees who had been there 20, 25 years suddenly watched their entire life savings go down the tube. And uh, unfortunately for uh, the markets, had Bear Stearns been allowed to sort of languish in their position, uh, it might have forced a little more prudence upon the street. But instead, with uh, J.P. Morgan coming to the rescue at the urging of the Federal Reserve, then the idea of uh, too big to fail and and moral hazard and all that uh, comes into play. The reality is that um, just about any bank of the size of Bear Stearns is too big to fail, 
And you can count on the Federal Reserve doing exactly what they did. Now, so the Federal Reserve, uh, they created the dollars and then gave that, or they loaned that to J.P. Morgan to buy this? Is that how that worked? Essentially. Yeah. In this case, the Federal Reserve uh, guaranteed up to $30 billion worth of bad loans on the books of Bear Stearns. Wow. All right, so a few minutes after the hour, let's invite you in, and here's how we play the phone game. Simply let the phone ring. We'll pick it up live on the air. Let it ring. Be prepared to turn down your computer when we pick it up because there is about a three- or four-second delay, and if you try to listen to the phone and Andrew and ask a question and listen to your computer, you will certainly, uh, well, there's a word for it. Here's a number, 888-1-NET-6. It is spell it out on your telephone, 888-1-NET-6. For those of you numerically inclined, that's 888-663-6386 with Andrew Goss. It is uh, the March of the 19th, just past the Ides of March. So the, the Fed uh, lowered interest rates uh, 75 basis points to 2.225%, right? Yeah. Now, this interest rate... Uh, that is what they uh, use for their member banks. Is that right? Yeah, that's what banks charge to loan each other money. 2.25%. Yeah. yeah. And it's a critical number because, you know, at, it was at 3%. So a 10% drop in interest rates would have been 0.3%. A 20% drop in interest rates, 0.6%. So a 75-point drop is, you know, goodness, 25%. Mm-hmm. So it's a 25% decrease in interest rates now, in, the, in the scope of a single... Uh, yeah, unit. yeah. Now, now, this is going to... This is actually going to be inflationary because more money is going to get created to get out there, correct? Well, yes, and, yes it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at the end of the day, it's going to be quite inflationary. But from the perspective of the Reserve, it's going to save a lot of people from going into foreclosure... And uh, we have a tremendous amount of mortgages resetting in uh, about a month where the rate that the new mortgage people are going to pay for the year are based is based upon the rate that day. Oh, you mean there are mortgages that are based on the this, this rate? Oh, indeed. I yeah. thought mortgages were tied to bonds and stuff. Well, they're tied to things like the LIBOR, the London Interbank Offered Rate, or to the 10-year Treasury Bill or mm-hmm. things of that nature. But... Um, all of those rates are are borne upon by the uh, bank Fed funds rate. So, you know, it's kind of like a trickle-down effect in interest rates, and it definitely will make a difference. So you'll see uh, credit card rates uh, drift down. You'll see adjustable rate mortgages drift down. Uh, I don't doubt, in fact, that you'll see uh, long-term 30-year fixed mortgages uh, in the, you know, low fives, high fours. Yeah, really. Now, can we say that the 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 real impetus for all of this stuff going on the last month and, and well from forever is the the creation of, of more dollars, uh, inflation, pure inflation? Yeah, that's, not, that's the major cause of all of this. Well, no, no, no. This is the end result of all of this. You know, the cause of it has to do with creating debt instruments uh, far in excess of the amount of money available to pay. So we have a, you know, a, a, let's say a debt of $70 trillion and a money supply of $13 trillion. You can't very well pay all that with mm-hmm. a fixed supply of money. So mm-hmm. that was the basis of the problem. 
the solution here is what's going to give us the inflation. Had the Federal Reserve chosen instead to uh, hands off, you know, take the policies of Alan Greenspan and just let him let him sink, uh, then no doubt we would have had a, a depression kicking over today. And a depression is just where you don't have enough money to go around. That's exactly right. Right, which is what happened in... 1929. 1929. No, but, more, but, more appropriately, 34. But you said that was an engineer deal. No question about no, that. Really. No question about they, that. They planned the whole thing in 29. Indeed they did. Um, they This wasn't planned. In fact, uh, this did take the money markets a bit by surprise. Uh, a bank like Bear Stearns, you don't expect them to go broke. Yeah. I mean, these guys are huge. They were the second biggest... Uh, issuer of bond mortgages in the in the country now this whole bear stearns action last week does this in fact open up some kind of pandora's box of what is going to be expected of the of the fed and uh, in the creation of more dollars to save more stuff uh, along the way in the next few months yeah no doubt yeah uh in fact i think you know if you sum it up in policy it, it is that the Fed has allowed the banking system to socialize their losses. Socialize their losses. Yeah, while privatizing their gains. Oh, hmm. So when they make money, they, of course, they keep that. But right. when they lose money, then we're expected as taxpayers <laughs> to bail them out. Well, that's an interesting concept. Well, it is. Yeah. So so we have to keep in mind that anytime you hear any of this bailout or all this money from the Fed, it's coming from our... A dollar that's being eaten away, right? I mean, yeah. that's key. That is key. That now, is key. You know, I'm not a socialist, but it, I just find the irony here absolutely appalling. I, you have, you know, Hillary Clinton comes out and suggests a national health care plan that might cost a couple hundred billion dollars. Oh, everybody says, no, 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 can't do that. That's socialism. Right. And then, you know, a month later, we're going to now bail out a single bank for a couple hundred billion dollars, and that's not socialism. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing, isn't it? It is exactly the same thing. Well, the only difference is in the in Hillary's plan, at least, you know, you have medicine for the children, uh, whereas in this, in this plan, I think it's the bankers that need to take the medicine and have not had to do so. In fact, uh, they've been rescued once again from their own uh, bad habits. Uh, that's something that we really shouldn't be doing as a government. Yeah. If you have a question for Andrew Goss, our weekly Wednesday night guest here on One Radio Network, 888-1NET-6, 888-1NET-6. Just let the phone ring. We'll pick it up live on the air. This is Patrick Timpone. Please tell your friends about what we're doing. This is only our, really, uh, third week, and um, it's uh, going well. We've worked through a lot of kinks uh, Technically, and uh, we're getting more and more people listening and more and more emails. So please forward our emails that you get or get on our email list. Tell people about the show every night, 7 p.m., about the podcast coming, a premium site that's going to be very huge and very big and very exciting. And uh, and then you'll help support the whole thing just by, uh, so the least you can do, if all you can do is pass it on to friends, well, that's a good thing. It is about 12 minutes past the hour, and the um, show is brought to you in part by NEDAC Rebounders and also SDL Inc., which is Andrew Goss's company that buys and sells gold coins in uh, the New Jersey area. That's a disclaimer. Andrew does buy and sell gold coins for a living. That's how he does make his money. And uh, you can call him at any time at 800-468-2646, 800 2646. Andrew, I talked with a friend just before the broadcast, and, um, you know, we were, he was talking about the price of gold, and 
Um, and so many people around the world now are saying $2,000 gold is not, not out of the question at all. Um, how can someone make a monthly income by investing in gold? That was his question. Is it possible? Well, it's, it's not usual. Mm-hmm. It would be unusual. Uh, but, but I've had folks ask me this question before, and, um, well, I'll, I'll use one of the portfolios as an example. Uh, this person lives in Arizona, asked me the same question. I suggested she take $100,000 and buy $20 gold pieces uh, about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And the plan was that w- one year into it, we would examine uh, the, t- the portfolio and see what the value of the $20 gold pieces was. And they were worth about 40% more than what she had paid. So she had $140,000 worth about 140,000. Wow. Remember an extraordinary year. Yeah, yeah. It's not usual. I honestly expected at the beginning of the year that it might be worth 115 to 117,000. But even that's a pretty good hit. And that was my plan at the end of the year to sell off 14 or 15,000 dollars worth of coins and mm-hmm. then go for the next year. Uh, oh, then give her the 14 to, to live off of. Exactly. Oh, that's an interesting. Exactly. Year. Yeah. And so that's what we've uh, what we've done with that particular portfolio. But here's the downside of it. Let's say that uh, she would have done this yesterday, and then today it went down forty three. Each of them were down fifty bucks. Yeah. So you know it is a, a, a you cannot do it on a month to month basis. It has to be done on a yearly basis. So if you're a person who's living month to month on your income, you really can't do it. It's mm-hmm. not reliable mm-hmm. enough. But mm-hmm. Smoothed out over a year, two years, three years, even five years, uh, you can produce income utilizing that method. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, now, you know, 43 bucks uh, gold went down. I guess just a lot of people selling, right? Well, a lot of the hedge funds that had anticipated uh, this Fed move mm-hmm. anticipated a one and a quarter percent move. Mm-hmm. So they were piling into gold and driving it up to heights that were in my view, unrealistic. I mean, we were at $1,033. Now, if you recall... Just too fast. Huh? Way too fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that extra 100 bucks or 70 80 bucks in, in value was all speculation. These weren't people that were buying gold because they wanted to hold it for a while. Uh, they were buying it to make the short-term pop. And the very moment that the Fed announced a 75 basis point increase instead or decrease instead of a point and a quarter, why then they quickly unwound their positions... That much gold hitting a, a you know a market at once just drove the price down to where it is now. So we have the stock market went went down what almost three hundred points. Gold went down uh, forty three bucks. Oil went down about uh, five or six bucks. So these kind of swings are I mean are they're unusual aren't they? Indeed they are, yeah. and they're signals of a of a market that's not very healthy. Mm-hmm. You know these type of wide swings, uh, although. To be fair, it's it's less than a 5% move in terms of gold. Uh, the bigger the number is in terms of the ounce, the, the larger a move it takes to really affect a 4 mm-hmm. or 5% move. Mm-hmm. So on the face of it, it seems like a lot, but it really isn't a very big correction in gold at all. Now, the highest gold uh, historically has ever been was, what, late 70s? Well, if you adjust for inflation, mm-hmm. um, 1980 was the high in gold at 800. Now that price today in today's dollars would be about 2400. Wow. Hence the 2000 number that everyone's uh, tossing about. You know, assuming that the situation is as bad as it was from 77 to 80, uh, there are many that suggest that we're it's like 1978, you know, 2008. 
What was going on between 77 and 80 that drove it to $800? Oh, the very same thing, incidentally. Mm-hmm. It was the, uh, uh, the Latin American contagion, and the players then were Manufacturers Hanover and Chemical Bank, a couple of banks that we haven't heard about in 20 years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they don't exist anymore. They were the Bear Stearns of the day, and mm-hmm. they had loaned hundreds of millions, in fact, billions of dollars to Latin America, and the Latin Americans weren't paying, and there was this tremendous shortage of money and so then the fed stepped in and started uh, uh pumping up the money supply and forcing um, marriages that's essentially what we had from 77 to 80 mm-hmm. so that inflationary run uh, was uh, precipitated by a banking crisis uh, very similar to the one we're in- mm-hmm. enjoying now can we say that uh, the war in iraq afghanistan pakistan uh, looming war is possible in in iran social security uh, situation with no money and uh, looming more money played on socialized medicine, that's all adding to the to these pressures now? Indeed it is. I mean, you can't spend $3 billion a day more than you take in and not expect some type of a response. And certainly that's what we're dealing with now. Um, you know, we have right now uh, an untenable situation as far as the federal government is concerned uh, with projected deficits of 600 billion to 900 billion dollars that's excluding iraq right? that's right right i don't see uh how we can sustain that level of spending without increasing the money supply to unreasonable levels uh unreasonable i mean as if they're they're 13 point what five trillion now about right yeah and uh, so are you talking another trillion in a year or, or another two trillion in a year another two trillion yeah what and- is two trillion what percent is two trillion of 13 well, it's uh, it's certainly greater than 10, probably more on the order of 15%, and, and that's what I think you're going to see in terms of annual inflation. Wow. Remember, I had uh, predicted 12 to 15% annual inflation uh, for the next five years, and we're just year one into that. So. Now, if they increase the money supply 15%, Andrew Goss, do you have to subtract GDP to have that as a fair number? In theory, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to take out the increase in productivity. Right. That is to say, you know, between 1980 and now, we've increased the money supply from one trillion to thirteen and a half trillion. If our economy would have grown by thirteen and a half times, then it would be on parity. We've increased our production. And correspondingly, we've increased the supply of money necessary to pay for that production. That makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. But to increase the supply of money in the face of a really lackluster GDP indicates that the makeup has to come from somewhere, and that's going to come in higher prices. Mm-hmm. Telephone number is 888-1NET-6, 888-1NET-6, if you'd like to come aboard and uh, just let it ring. My name is Patrick Timpone, along with Andrew Goss. He is a currency historian, author of Secret Roll of Money, and Uncle Sam Cooks the Books. Andrew, how can folks get the, get the two books in your newsletter? Well, actually, you know, if they sign up to... Uh, uh, to Radio, I, I, I one radio network. Yeah, one radio network. I'm going to make the two books available as a premium. Oh, when they if they sign up on our website. That's right. Oh, cool. So we're so, going to have that offer very soon. That offer is uh, good, good for now. You. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah, that's good so. For in you. fact, that's the only way you can get my two books. If you want them, uh, you can sign up, uh, and and they'll be included as part of the deal. Well, we appreciate that. Thank sure. you very much. Mm-hmm. Um, Swiss franc in 1970 was like 4.37, right, Something to the like dollar. Mm-hmm. Now it's exactly the same as the dollar. The euro, uh, what, uh, it, eight years ago, 
was uh, 82 cents and now it's like a buck 60. <laughs> now explain why this is uh, exactly what 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 really is it just simply the amount of dollars out there? Yeah, the amount of dollars relative to those two currencies, you mm-hmm. know. And this is the interesting thing, you would think that a country would want to keep its currency strong, that it would want a strong currency. Right. But that's not the case. In fact, whoever has the cheapest currency benefits by taking the business from the others. I was talking to someone in Colorado yesterday who told me that uh, they had the biggest ski season ever. Over five and a half million foreign visitors came from Europe, Japan, and flew into Colorado, stayed in the hotels there, and went skiing because it was cheaper than skiing in Switzerland. And this uh, uh, mindset on the part of government officials, that the cheaper we make the dollar, the more uh, robust our economy will become, is really in in contradiction to what the Europeans want or what the Japanese want. So as sick as Hmm. it sounds, it's almost a race to to see who can make their dollar or their currency worth less. (laughs) And whoever has the cheapest currency... Uh, gets the business because their goods and services are now less expensive for everyone else. So I, I misunderstood. So Europe and Japan are uh, they're they're going to they're trying to weaken theirs as well. Or Indeed, yeah, they're they not, are. They're not pleased with the prospect of a weak dollar, uh-huh. uh, especially the Europeans. Uh, we're no doubt going to suffer a recession as a result of uh, the weak dollar. Hmm. And the Chinese have been notoriously uh, propping up the dollar in value in an attempt to make their goods and services cheaper. So this is an ongoing problem, but to little avail, I note that you know we're looking at about uh, 72 on the uh, dollar index. So I mean that drop from year over year is is almost 20%. It's startling. And uh, I see lower support down there at 70. So we have about uh, 3 2.5 to 3% to go uh, just to reach equilibrium in the dollar. Um, are you going to buy an IPO of Visa going public? No, I don't think so. In <laughs> fact, you know, the Carlyle Group went public, too, if you recall. Yeah. And when they were private, uh, they were doing great. Carlyle Capital, uh, when they were privately held institution, making tons of money. As soon as they went public, now they're bankrupt. Uh, so uh, this is not a, a good uh, sign when, you know, they've kept it private all these years when it was a money-making machine, and uh, now, of course, they decide to go public. I would be a little worried about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, five years ago today, uh, we invaded the, not we, the United States government invaded Iraq. What is your opinion of why that happened? Well, because Saddam Hussein uh, didn't want to be paid for his oil in dollars anymore. In fact, he wrote a letter to the U.N. saying that, in his oil for food program, he didn't. He wanted to be paid with uh, euros. He didn't want dollars anymore. And this, of course, uh, is not something that we can uh, stomach as a nation. Uh, because had that been allowed to continue, uh, we would have been far worse off now than we are. As bad as that is to imagine. And how do you know that? Well, I don't. You know, to be honest, I really the only evidence that I can point to is. You know, by the fruits, you know the deeds, right? Mm-hmm. And the very one of the very first things that was done was, of course, put Iraq back on policy. And then every official pronouncement or every uh, indication of how well things were going in Iraq always included oil production. 
You know, they point to, well, oil production increased this many percent this month and this many percent that month. And, of course, now they're bragging that we're, you know, at record levels of production for Iraqi oil. And every single dollar that's used to pay for that Iraqi oil flows into a bank account in New York. And where are you cut out a second? In New York. In New York City. Yeah, it is. Uh, to this day. To this day. It is the money center banks in New York that are enjoying the revenues of the Iraqi oil fields. Now, whether that money sits in those accounts or is invested, my favorite uh, term, you know, invested for the Iraqi people, invested in the same debt instruments that are being used to wow. bail out the rest of the so, so, So the Iraqi people know this? No, I don't think they do. I mean, they suspect uh, to the extent that they're willing to go digging for the information, they could find it out. Uh, there are a few in, in high positions of power that understand uh, the nature of what's happened to their to their nation's uh, wealth. But by and large, the Iraqi people don't quite have a handle on it. So so you're suggesting that the that the million dollars, it, I don't know, how, it's, a, it's a great deal of money, isn't it? It is indeed, yeah. Uh, it just goes to, uh, and how did it get there? I mean, how did they pull that off? Well, uh, you know, Colin Powell uh, made a few comments about the Iraqi Oil Trust. And what he said was that the money that's going to be coming from the new production in the Iraqi oil fields would be held in trust for the Iraqi people. And that kind of set everyone to rest for a minute. Okay, so you're not going to take the money and take the oil and you're going to hold the money for the Iraqi people in a trust fund. Well, all they had to do was really look at the Social Security Trust Fund to see how we treat trust funds. Mm -hmm. uh, in reality, the moment that the money got to New York, it was quickly converted from instant cash into investments, investments in treasury bonds and treasury bills and things of that nature. So really what the Iraqis were providing was a, an inflow of capital, a tremendous inflow of capital, to take up some of this uh, debt that's uh, drowning the markets. So it, it really was a an almost necessary item. Now, to be fair, had the uh, had the Iraqis continued to price their oil in dollars and uh, were allowed to sell them for dollars instead of trucking them out the back door and selling them for selling their oil for euros, uh, we may never have seen the need to invade. Uh, but given the circumstances, I mean, as you know, I'm not a warmonger, but I think that um, it was only the it was the, about the only choice open to the administration. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, are Russia and Iran selling their oil for for dollars still, or have they changed? Well, I understand that the Russians are now setting up an oil bourse that allows uh, oil to be bought for rubles, mm -hmm. their own currency, mm -hmm. which is uh, something that uh, uh, they spoke about. Uh, under previous occasions, the problem was that the ruble never was convertible. No one had any respect for it as an international currency. Uh, now that the ruble has suddenly gained a certain modicum of respect, uh, they are, uh, in fact, making a difference. And oil is being sold inside Russia, Russian oil, for rubles. So that means American oil companies, if they want to buy Russian oil, have to first convert their dollars into rubles, mm -hmm. and then use the rubles to buy uh, oil. That creates a demand for rubles that will strengthen uh, the U, uh, the U, the Russian currency while damaging uh, the U.S. dollar. So, so the there's a central bank in Russia that creates rubles, just like uh, the Fed creates dollars. Indeed, there is, and that's, yeah. that's kind of everywhere. Right? Everywhere, yeah. yeah. They got that central bank thing going. Oh, indeed, they did. Uh, <laughs> you know, through 
after both world wars, uh, the, the model, the Federal Reserve model, which uh, really swung into action to mobilize the credit of the United States behind World War II, uh, it really set the stage and, and made others really want to adopt that model. And those that we conquered naturally adopted the model, but even those that were our allies, uh, like the Russians were, uh, set up their central bank in to emulate the Fed because it was viewed as such a successful entity. This is One Radio Network, Patrick Timpone, along with Andrew Goss. He's a 25-year currency historian, author of The Secret World of Money and Uncle Sam Cook's the Books, and also a newsletter called The World of Money. You're going to have an opportunity to get all three of those as we launch our premium website, which will be very, very soon, and have a chance you'll have access to over 125 interviews of the past and workshops we've done, and then we're adding at least 25 a month, 25 new interviews every month. There's virtually uh, nobody around that's doing that and who's going to, and we're going to be charging a very nominal uh, price for our premium site, probably going to be in the $15, $19 range, and it's going to be lots and lots of great stuff to take care of your family, take care of your wealth, and... uh, and, and learn about things that are going to help you to survive in the 21st century. Um, to, to be able to increase the money supply, the, uh, the, the Federal Reserve needs, wants to sell Treasury bonds, right? Well, that's their main uh, source. That's their main of way asset. to do it. So, so, in other words, people buy Treasury bonds and then they, they sell them. And they pay them an interest of three or four percent or whatever. I read today where they, they were trying to sell a bunch of ten-year treasuries. What last week? And usually, about twenty-five percent of the ones they want to sell go to outside sources, but only six percent sold, and that was somewhat unprecedented. Yes, it was. You know, that was a stand aside. In fact, that entire auction was viewed as a disaster because foreign investors did not take up as much as they thought they would. They usually take up about 25%? Yeah, I think the number was like 28%. Uh-huh. Almost 30%. And, and six is correct. They they took six instead. So, And why is that? Well, I mean, I can't imagine if you looked at the dollar on a, on a, as a chart, as a stock, let's say, I mean, the thing's going straight down. <laughs> Who would want to buy it? <laughs> Where's so, it going? It's going down. It, yeah, it just keeps going down. So... I think they're a little bit gun shy, and uh, given the the extent of the crisis, uh, I don't blame them for standing aside. They just wanted to really see how this was going to play out. Mm-hmm. And remember, no one was sure uh, whether the Fed was going to bail out Bear Stearns or whether it, it was going to take any action on the order of what it did. So, who are the general purchasers of these kind of uh, uh, notes to to bring in uh, cash? Um, that the Federal Reserve creates. Who usually buy different countries buy these? Well, yeah, uh, you know, the, the trade deficit countries, everyone who has an excess of dollars, rather than leave it sitting in Federal Reserve notes, which, remember, bear no interest, uh, they buy Treasury bills and Treasury bonds and things of that nature and store them instead. Um, the Treasury counts on these foreign investors to take up a certain portion of what they auction. And then everything else is, of course, left to the domestic markets. And then what the domestic markets don't want and the foreigners don't want, then it's up to the Federal Reserve to monetize. That's where they got the $200 billion pile of Treasury bills that they put out in the street uh, earlier this week. So let's go through that, to monetize. So they have, say, let's just put a round figure, $100 billion worth of 
securities to sell. And uh, that's Congress, because, right, you know, Congress spends $100 billion that they didn't take in in taxes. Okay. So now they need to raise $100 billion. They print bonds. Okay. They say, okay, here's $100 billion worth of bonds that yield 3% interest, Mm -hmm. and we're putting them up. Who wants to buy them? Okay. Okay. So, and usually 25% are purchased by other countries. Yeah, usually $25 billion purchased okay. by other countries. Instead, they bought 6 6%. Right. Wow. So and then you had domestic uh, purchasers took up another 30 and Now that's 36 Right. So now we're still short, 63 Right. What do we do? 64 Well, the Federal Reserve in that instance creates $64 billion, hands it to Congress, and takes $64 billion worth of bonds. So... Whatever is not taken up by the markets can't be just allowed to, well, that's it. There were no buyers, so we don't do it. So the Federal Reserve transfers $64 billion to Congress and then... Uh, Takes $64 billion in bonds and puts it on its pile. On its pile. What happens with those? Who pays the interest on those? Well, we, we pay the, the interest. We yeah. the people, right? Right. That's right. And they, of course, as bondholders, collect the interest. And this is one of my criticisms of the Fed, that... You know, they shouldn't be allowed to make money from making money. Uh, This is a function that should be left to Congress. If Congress had the power to create money, it would never have to even issue a bond. If it needed $100 billion that it didn't take in in taxes, it could just create $100 billion and spend it into circulation. Uh, It would be just as inflationary as if the Fed did it, but at least there wouldn't be an interest to pay. Mm -hmm. And and that's Mm -hmm. really tearing us up as a nation. You know, Mm -hmm. $500 billion plus in annual interest payments are eating us alive. That's like the big elephant in the room that uh, nobody really talks about or can get their arms around much, is it? No. Monetary uh, policy is something that uh, it's really not polite to discuss. <laughs> you know, the current so- Congress, even the president, uh, John McCain, presidential candidate John McCain, has said, you know, he doesn't, he's not interested in economics. He doesn't mm-hmm. care about it. I imagine he'll just hire somebody, you know, let the smart guys take care of that, and I'll worry about the more minute details. Well, that attitude has gotten us where we are right now with people refusing to learn about monetary policy, how it operates. Uh, They've allowed this situation to exist. But that's such a big deal. I mean, it's like huge, if understandable by Americans, of the difference in their lives if if, uh, you could cut out the uh, Federal Reserve, the private bankers. Oh, that's right. I mean, that's just huge, isn't it? It is, because it's a twofold. That's everything. Well, it's twofold. One, we would save the interest payments, which it's a lot of money to begin with. What is it? It's about... uh, $500 billion a year. $500 billion a year. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. But bigger still is the seniorage. The cost to manufacture, a dollar, minus its face value. So... In other words, if, let's go back to our example. The Federal Reserve created $64 billion. Right. Well, it cost them about 100 bucks to create $64 billion. And so that means that the $63,999,000,000 on and on that it kept as profit, uh, that money is not in the Treasury of the United States. That money represents an IOU to the Fed. And that, that could have been in our pockets. Huh? It sure could have. Hey, whoops. It did hang up. It's not supposed to do that. Somebody called in. Oh, oh don't hang up. Yeah, you uh, give us a call. Eight 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 one net six. Eight 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 one net six. Let it ring. And this person just hung up when we picked it up. Um, 
So the seniorage, so the United States government could then partake in that seniorage, right? As long as not having to pay interest, which would be like, it's, it's, I, I suppose that if people really understood what that is, there could be a real clamor to, to get rid of these boys. Well, at least to make them, yeah, make them government servants, you know, make them do this for us. That's mm-hmm. what I would do. I wouldn't get rid of them. They perform a great function. I would just nationalize them, you know, get in there and draft them all. Give them ranks if you have to. Uh-huh. <laughs> Tell them, you're in the Army now. You work for us. And so get out there and do all your Federal Reserve stuff. Just at the end of the day, whatever profit you've made doesn't stay in the Treasury, I mean, in the Federal Reserve vaults. It goes into the Treasury vaults. And then if Congress needs to use that, they'll appropriate it. See, right now, the Fed does not come before Congress and ask for an appropriation. What it does is the reverse. It gets to pay all of its expenses and a 6% guaranteed dividend from its earnings. Then whatever's left, Mm -hmm. then it has to return that to the Treasury. Mm -hmm. And that figure has never been audited, incidentally. You know, they, they tell us what is left, and we really have no way of knowing whether it's the truth or not. But is it safe to say that the Federal Reserve Banks, the private bankers, the J.P. Morgan and Solomon Smith, Barney, and the rest of them, uh, these are what who we affectionately call the boys, and these are all part and parcel of of the, the people that really run the world? Well, these are the guys that own the Federal Reserve Banks. Right. So, I mean, if they own the bank and they need something, well, here's a, a real interesting point. Bear Stearns could not go to the Fed and borrow money. But J.P. Morgan could. Bear Stearns does not own the Fed. J.P. Morgan does. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it is that critical difference. In fact, if Bear Stearns would have been allowed to do what J.P. Morgan could do, then, and I'm not suggesting they should be, but if they could have, then they wouldn't have had a problem. Uh, So it really sets up, as I predicted in Secret World of Money, that we would come to a time when there would only be 20 banks or 22 banks, I think is what I said, in the whole country. And we're not very far from that now. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. The phone, uh, we thought we had them working, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to work on them. So by tomorrow night, we'll have them. So, but people are calling, and we go to put them on the air, and it just hangs up on you. So I'm very sorry. But, uh, uh, you know, technology. Technology, sometimes it just doesn't work. Yeah, but, uh, the more you pay for it, the less it works. <laughs> That's right. The more you pay, the less it works. But we're glad you're out there. So, you know, you can probably email me, and I can just turn around. I don't have a computer in front of me, but I can do it. If you have a question, Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com. Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com if you have a question. Sorry about the phones, but tell folks your phone number there and what kind of services you offer. Okay. If you'd like to learn more about the gold and silver coin market, uh, you can call us at 800 468 2646. Uh, we provide everything from uh, what we affectionately call junk silver, which are quarters, dimes, and half dollars from before 1964 that have the full measure of a dollar contained in them. And incidentally, they're 12 to 1 now. $12, 12 Federal Reserve notes for every one real dollar. Really? Yeah. And wow. that's, that's about in keeping with that. 12 or 13 times as much money in circulation yeah, as there was. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. So you can buy those uh, for emergency currency or as a means of storing wealth privately. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also uh, deal in American gold coins. Uh, the $20 gold piece is the mainstay of our offerings. We think that uh, 
That's a great way to store long-term value in the old $20 St. Gaudens and the $20 Liberty types. Uh, they're my number one recommended coin. Now, why would someone buy into gold now at uh, close to $1,000 an ounce? I mean, that's pretty high. Because it's going to $2,000 yeah. an ounce, yeah. You know, in fact, you want to try to buy on these uh, uh, times of weakness. Uh, when gold pulls back a little bit, that's the best time to buy. So we counsel folks that you're not trying to speculate here, catching the exact bottom or the exact top of a market, but rather you're accumulating. You're trying to build a pile of real value that at some point in the future you can go back to, and it will buy the same amount of goods and services that it did when you put it away. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the best you can hope for. If you could get that out of your 1973 dollar, you'd be in good shape. Uh, but the reality is that the more folks work and the more money that they save, the less the money's worth. And uh, when they go back to it and spend it, 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 you know, whereas in 1973, a dollar would buy you a breakfast and leave you money left over for a tip. Mm-hmm. Uh, now a dollar won't even buy you a cup of coffee, let alone pay the tip. Mm-hmm. So it is, uh, it's almost a necessity that folks uh, accumulate gold and silver coin as a means of protecting their wealth. And these are, this is a private transaction. Oh, indeed, yeah. Uh, totally private, so if you make any money on it, it's up to you to report it, right? That's right. No Social Security numbers required. No 1099. No right? 1099s, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's uh, effectively the last private investment, I think, left. And folks just have to have a, a private and a safe place to store them, and they're, and they're good to go. Well, you know, that is the key here. In mm-hmm. fact, um, because it's a bearer investment, it's not a certificate or a book entry. It's physical possession. I mean, mm-hmm. I mail you the physical coins. You have to store them securely. If someone gets them, they can turn them into money with the same privacy that you can. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't know who did it or when they did it. There'd be no way to trace it. Mm-hmm. So I urge people to consider that carefully. If you don't have a, a good, secure place to store gold... And you really want to think carefully about buying it. And we talked before the uh, on the air. I, I asked you if you had a lot of inventory, and you said well, you just bought a bunch, right? Yeah, we were buying with both hands and feet today. In yeah, fact. We're, yeah. yeah. As you know, anyone who uh, was panicking and selling their gold, uh, we were stepping up to the plate and buying it. So we virtually emptied the checkbook uh, buying gold today. And and I anticipate if I have to tomorrow, I'll borrow some money and buy more. Uh, because these are fire sale prices, in my view, and a uh, good time to take advantage of it. Mm. Well, it, 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 you know, you just paint such an eloquent picture each week on each month on KLBJ and each week here about so many factors: Social Security, socialized medicine coming, probably um, the war in Iraq, and possibly in Iran and other places. Uh, so many different things where the money supply is going to have to be increased. Tremendously, right? Right. That's I mean, what it appears. I, how could gold not go up? I mean, what would be, what would be a reason why it wouldn't go up uh, considerably? Well, if if for example the Fed decided, okay, that's it, we're not bailing anyone else out, mm-hmm. uh, we're not cutting interest rates anymore. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's really what caused gold to go down today. They didn't cut them enough, mm-hmm. in the view of those that uh, trade this stuff. So. If they suddenly got prudence down in Washington and stopped spending more than they took in, uh, these things all could combine to force gold down significantly. Even with having to come up with newly created dollars for 
uh, all the Social Security benefits to the baby boomers and such. I mean, isn't that like trillions of dollars? It is. And, uh-huh. and Congress could choose instead to raise taxes. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's not going to happen, is it? Well, really? I don't see that as politically. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all about uh, making sure. a bet. you got to yeah. make a bet one way or the other. My bet is they're not going to raise taxes. Mm-hmm. They're going to increase the money supply. And they're going to throw all that money into circulation, reduce mm-hmm. the value of the dollar, mm-hmm. and thereby make gold a great mm-hmm. investment. So that's so, what I'm counting. So on. you really, you really believe that uh, this 2,000 uh, number someday in the future is is a real thing? Yeah, that's not un- that's not unreasonable. No, yeah. it's not unreasonable. I, Twelve to fourteen hundred dollar gold is not unreasonable in my mind either. So, you know, anything in between is certainly acceptable. The key point is mm-hmm. that your purchasing power will be maintained. In other words, if gold is $2,000 an ounce, you can bet that gas will be 8 bucks a gallon. And, and, and this is the reality of it, that <laughs> it's not so much that you're, you're making money with gold, it's that you're preserving your purchasing power. Mm-hmm. You'll still be able to buy the same amount of gas with an ounce of gold five years from now as you can today. And that's the real key to it all. Yeah, I've seen that oftentimes. I don't know if it was one of your, one of your books, but the idea that, what, 1875 or so, uh, what a uh, gold, uh, what was it, an ounce a of gold? 20, yeah, $20 gold $20 piece. $20 gold piece would buy, what, a really good man's men's suit, and it's about the same today, right? Yeah, a really good men's suit and right. lunch in and, Manhattan. Right, yeah. it's about the same today, right? That's right. Go buy a really good men's suit and lunch in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. That's a very interesting thing. Um, and we, lunch in Manhattan's like, you know, 100 bucks. Right, right. <laughs> Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about uh, some things that folks can do uh, in the last ten minutes or so, if they've uh, heard uh, most of this, or if they're listening on a podcast. Even a month from now, things have probably changed a lot. So, if uh, it's March two thousand and eight when we're recording this, March nineteenth, what are some things, regardless of when you're listening to it, that folks can do to protect themselves? Which looks like it's going to be pretty. Uh, a hefty amount of inflating of the of the, of the money supply. Well, the first thing I would look at are uh, probably the one thing that um, many Americans with money don't think about, and that is the idea that FDIC insurance limits at a hundred thousand. So, if you have more than a hundred thousand dollars in a single banking institution, you want to make sure that you're insured uh, for that whatever it is you have in there. Mm-hmm. If not, move it. <laughs> you know, keep under those limits. Uh, Second, take a good hard look at municipal bonds or any long-term bonds or annuities that you own. Uh, The the further we get into this, the less the dollar is going to be worth and the more likely that you'll be paid back with dollars that are going to be worth substantially less than the ones that you pledged. Hmm. So these are probably the two key things that I think Americans can do. And then uh, take advantage of these low interest rates if if you find yourself... uh, having difficulty with your mortgage or needing uh, additional capital to maybe send the kids to school or what have you, as ludicrous as it might sound, uh, you want to take a look at borrowing that money, especially right now when uh, interest rates are, are heading down. Mm. That's that's the best time to be a borrower. So if your credit is worthy, uh, is it a good time to be buying real estate? I think it's a great time to buy real estate. Uh-huh. I was uh, rereading uh, uh, my book on Andrew Carnegie. And I picked up one of his quotes. Uh, it was, um, the judicious acquisition and disposal of real estate. That's the key to wealth. So you can't just buy it and hold it forever, but buy it and sell it and buy it and sell it. 
And that's uh, uh, Andrew Carnegie's uh, mm. recipe for wealth growth. And mm. I think America should follow that as well. You know, if you bought a piece of property uh, 10 or 20 years ago and you find that you have tremendous equity in it, selling that property, uh, reaping the equity, and then buying something else with a, a small down payment uh, means that you freed up a chunk of cash. Mm-hmm. And you now have the uh, the real estate asset working for you again. Mm-hmm. So I'm a big believer in mortgages, uh, and uh, real estate is the one area where mortgages come into play, especially now in light of all this contagion. So uh, the the banks are being leaned on by the Federal Reserve to lower their standards and to uh, make credit easily available. So uh, that's when you want to get in there. Do you, do you think in the next uh, year or two, that, that things could get so uh, strange that that folks with small businesses could have a problem just selling their goods and services because folk, there's a lack of money out there? Is that well, possible? Well, it depends on the actions that the Fed takes. You know, they, they've taken in now about $270 billion worth of these bad loans onto their own books, and they've exchanged uh, $270 billion worth of good uh, United States Treasury bonds for that debt. Hmm. And, but they've done so in a manner that uh, they they say that, that 28 days from now, they're going to give those bonds, the, that debt back to whoever gave it to them, and they'll be expecting their treasury bonds and bills to be returned. Hmm. If they hold to that, which I doubt they will, but if they do, yeah, you could see some real serious uh, effects uh, as not enough money will be available for circulation. Hmm. But I doubt they're going to do that. I think, in fact, they're going to... They're going to increase that uh, activity and, and uh, probably create another hundred or so billion to inject into the system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you see the possibility that there's, uh, in a sense, it'd be two currencies, where they'll have a currency that is used in other parts of the world that is maybe have some kind of backing so people will favor it, and then have one in this country that's you know just wimpy like it is without any backing. <laughs> That was the the system we were under uh, from 34 to 73, where internally we weren't allowed to convert our dollars into gold, but externally foreigners could. Ah. Uh, and people have spoken about this. We have a two-tiered system now. We have dollars and then we have euro dollars. The euro dollars are not euros. They are dollars that are outside of the U.S. banking system, so not subject to the regulation of the U.S. banking system. So they don't uh, pay attention to any of the cash reporting rules or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I do see as more and more American multinational companies move offshore and set up their operations in Dubai and the Cayman Islands, an increase, a dramatic increase in the quantities of euro dollars, which will effectively create a two-tiered system, you mm-hmm. know, dollars that are outside of the taxing jurisdiction of the United States and dollars that are inside the taxing jurisdiction of the United States, because ultimately I do see higher taxes as uh, one of the things coming up on mm-hmm. us in this decade. Did you learn any, before we go, did you learn any more about the the the, the gold bars in Ethiopia that turned out to not be gold bars? I did, in fact. What's uh, the deal? <laughs> they aren't gold. They are steel uh, plated with gold. Uh, the trader that sold the last shipment has been arrested. He's in jail. Uh, the, they're going through the vaults there to try to determine uh, how much more is, is uh, un- uh, not real. Uh, they did find a, a significant size bar that had been bought some years ago uh, that turned out to be fake, so they were unable to trace it. 
I expect that this will continue. I doubt it's uh, limited to that one little central bank. So somebody stole all the gold and bought some, what was it, stainless steel or something? Yeah, steel. Barred, bars and then painted them gold. That's <laughs> a beautiful thing. Yeah. A good way that, to make money. Yeah. You got to love that. Yeah. A friend of mine asked me uh, last night to ask you um, about the Amero. He keeps hearing things about uh, a currency for Canada. United States and Mexico. Do you see that as a reality? Well, not if the Fed has anything to say about it. Um, you know, the 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 I, the attitude of the Fed for the last ten years or so has been that they want to dollarize the world. In fact, eighty-five percent of world trade is conducted in dollars. Uh, they want South America to use dollars. Even our colony Mexico should use dollars, according to um, according to those folks at the Federal Reserve. Well. Uh, American banks have been going into Canada of late and poaching upon what has been traditionally viewed as the Canadian uh, banking system's business. And so it's gotten so bad that the Fraser Institute, which is funded by one of those Canadian underwriters, came up with this article, or it was actually a white paper, entitled A Case for the Amero. It was written in 1999, and it was at about the same time that we were being given the euro. And the idea was, hey, maybe instead of letting the Fed take over the world, <laughs> we could create uh, a three-way deal where Canada, Mexico, and the United States would have a single currency uh, ruled over by a currency board with members from Canada, members from Mexico, and members from the United States. The Canadians absolutely wanted it. The Mexicans would love to have it, but the Federal Reserve simply will not allow it. Uh, now, this is not to say that there's not a real danger in the North American Union. The thing that I fear the most is alignment of our, our legal systems where a, a judgment obtained in Mexico could be enforced in a court in the United States. Hmm. Th this really worries me, and this is very real. It's not a, a speculative thing. This is happening. So while we're busy waiting for the Amero to join us together, it's our legal systems that will join us together. So I would uh, I would be very wary of a North American Union, but I wouldn't expect anything other than a federally reserve Federal Reserve yeah. issued currency. We got an email from a listener, Karen. Uh, Karen, uh, email. She said, now in 1980, gold went up to uh, about what 800, but then it backed down to what 250 or so. So if it goes up to 2,000, uh, she says, as history is our guide, maybe it's, it'll go back down to a thousand or. Whatever, a seven hundred. Then she's wanting to know, a listener by email. How can how can you protect her? How can she protect herself from that if she gets in the goal? Well, you know, this doesn't happen without some type of warning. Uh, it didn't just drop from eight hundred to two eighty overnight. It kind of gradually took its way down, uh -huh. and it followed interest rates. So before you'll see that, you'll see a dramatic rise in interest rates, and then once they peak out and start to come back down. That's when you'll be getting advice from me to sell your gold. Mm -hmm. That's a good time to do it. And there's always buyers for gold. Oh, yes, goodness, yes. <laughs> always buyers. There's just not a lot of it to go around. Huh? That's it. Well, Mr. Goss, we really covered a lot of territory. Good stuff. From the hill country of Texas, this is One Radio Network.